0: Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: What do you say you take a look in the mirror? Now, what is it that you didn't do last year that you absolutely have to do in 2018? Work out more, lose weight, make more money, be a better person. Yeah, that's all fine and well, but the most important thing you can do to improve your health, well-being, and energy is to stop snoring and get a Zipa. If you snore, you need to stop. Snoring is not sleeping. Every time you snore, both you and those next to you do not get quality sleep. How sleep deprivation impacts your life is immeasurable. What is proven is that Zipa is guaranteed to stop snoring and what better way to start your year? Get a Zipa. Go to Zipa.com, Z-Y-P-P-A-H.com. Make this new year a new you. Do not procrastinate. Go to Zipa.com, that's Z-Y-P-P-A-H.com. Let's agree that 2018 is the year that you stop snoring. If you already use a Zipa, congrats. If it's been six months or more, you need a new Zipa. Again, snoring is rude, disrespectful, and embarrassing. Relationships are in constant strain because snoring keeps people from staying in the same bed all night. So this is your opportunity. Get a Zipa. Go to zyppah.com and make this new year a new you. Do not wait. Go to Zipa.com. That's zyppah.com.
2: A kid in my hometown introduced it to me, gave me a 40-milligram pill. I spent 20 bucks on it. And I eventually started spending 25000 a month on it. I was taking 1,600 milligrams of OxyContin a day. That's
1: 2080. $25,000 um, a month on OxyContin? Yeah. What did that do for you? What did that feel like?
2: I was taking 1,600 milligrams of OxyContin a day not to get hot, to hide the sickness. And if I didn't, everyone knew it.
1: Welcome to the Jim Rohn Podcast, episode 20. After two spins around the dial, I am bringing you an episode that's going to feel and sound a little bit different because I'm going to let former NBAer Chris Herron tell his story. Now, if you know this story, I know you'll stick around. If you do not know the story, you're going to want to because I'm not sure I've ever heard a story quite like this one. Now, I would imagine virtually everybody listening has been impacted some way by addiction. They have battled it. A family member has battled it, a friend has battled it, and yes, Chris Heron certainly battled it. A demon that he has fought off now for nearly one decade, but a battle that he is committed to fight for others as well through the Heron Project. He was a high school legend in basketball-crazy Fall River, Mass., a one-time McDonald's All-American with scholarship offers everywhere. He decided to stay home and play at Boston College. And instead of it being one of the best things ever, it turned out to be one of the very worst, and hence the start of an absolutely harrowing journey to hell and back. So I'm going to step back and let our conversation do the talking. Episode 20 with Chris Heron starts right now.
2: No, it's great to great to hear your voice. Great to be back on. You know, things just living one day at a time. Coming up on ten years sober. So life is uh life is good, completely different and um, you know, just happy to be uh living one day at a time.
1: Chris, that tenure number really is something else and I want to talk to you about that. But before we get to that point, why don't you go back to the beginning? You're from Fall River, Mass, of course. It's a tough, tough mill town. Exactly what did basketball mean to that community and then what was life like growing up in Fall River?
2: So basketball was everything to Fall River. You know, I grew up in a time where, you know, Durfee basketball was bigger than the Boston Celtics. We were kind of running parallel with the Celtics in a sense. You know, it was Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, DJ Parrish, and then there was Durfee basketball. You know, we played in front of 4,000 people every night, had season ticket holders. It was kind of the heartbeat of the city. I was a young kid growing up in the shadows of of my brother who was a two-time state champion. I was growing up in the shadow of a father who was a successful basketball player as well as family members before me. So the pressure was enormous. And it was something that I really struggled with, Um, although extremely talented, um, really, really struggled internally uh, processing that type of pressure and and the expectations that came with it.
1: So the expectations were crushing. The pressure was immense. But at the same time, you were crushing it at Durfee High School. You were McDonald's High School All-American. You were recruited by every program in the country and then you choose to go to Boston College, it all seemed like the stuff of dreams for somebody from Fall River, but was it? You know, it was a
2: nightmare. I wasn't ready for it. Uh, I wasn't mature enough for that transition. I've been speaking now on this topic for for seven years, and and when I first started, I would always talk about all the negative and the nightmares about my addiction. And and I think fundamentally we've gone wrong. I, I think we forget the first day, and we always focus on the worst day around this topic. And, and, I, and I reflect back to that because you know, I started drinking when I was 13 years old. You know, I was partying in best, my best friend's basement regularly when I was 14, 15 years old. I was hanging out in, in, general, in, in men's clubs and, and bar rooms in Fall River when I was 16, 17 years old. You know, the story was, was, was set. And going to Boston College and being an 18 year old kid who partied like, a, like an adult, It was just a recipe for disaster for me. And I I walked into the wrong room at the wrong time and cocaine was on the desk and I fell in love with it. And and shortly after, I was asked to leave Boston College for a failed drug test. You know, cocaine was a drug for me at 18 years old that allowed me to reflect, to talk openly about my emotions and everything that I was dealing with. It was the perfect storm for me at that age.
1: What do you say to a kid Who is at a party and is faced with a decision and some peer pressure and thinks to himself or herself, I think I'll try cocaine. I'm just going to do it this one time. I'll just do it this once and never, ever again.
2: I said the same thing. Cocaine had me for 14 years. Cocaine had me on the brink of suicide, depression. You know, forget basketball. Obviously, cocaine had a profound impact on my basketball career. But it it almost killed me personally. You, You know, not many people get away with one time. You know, and I try to tell people all the time doing this. When you start chasing death for a feeling, things are really wrong in life. And I chased death for a feeling from my from the time I was 18 years old till I was 32. Anytime you put cocaine up your nose in a pipe, in a syringe, there's a chance you're going to die. Anytime you swallow a Perk 30 and oxycontin or shoot heroin, there's a chance you're going to die. And every single time you do it, you're, you're chasing death for a feeling. And that's a horrible, horrible way to live.
1: So, Chris, you're a local legend and you want to stay home and you want to go to Boston College. But then it ended badly because you were kicked out of school within five months. So given who you were and given where you were, what was it like to have it end so abruptly at B.C.?
2: It ended abruptly, but I was still I was still in denial you know, I was under this illusion that, hey, I'm, doing co- I'm drinking beers and, and I've done a couple of bumps. Like, I did a couple of fucking lines of cocaine, leave me alone. You know, like, I made a mistake, I'll never do it again. Once that grabs a hold of you, there's a very good chance you're going to do it again. And until you, until you look into the why, then you're not going to get to the bottom of it, to the root of it. You know, I say this all the time. People always told me, even from the day I started drinking, and, and when you think about it as parents, Parents will. you come home drunk at 15, it's where were you, who you with, where'd you get it, how much you do. It's never why. Nobody ever asks why. It's always, you know, external rather than internal. So, you know, in retrospect, I wish somebody, when I got kicked out of Boston College, grabbed me by my shirt and said, Hey, listen, man, you're a McDonald's All-American. You uh, did a two-page spread in Sports Illustrated at 18.00. You're on the campus of Boston College ready to take over Boston. Why? Why? Why'd you self-destruct, man? You know? Like, just why? I mean, it's it sounds so simple, but why is so deep? And if I would have answered the question back then, I would have probably said, if I answered it honestly, you know, my father's alcoholism is breaking my mother's heart. My mom and dad are going through a divorce. I don't even know if I like basketball right now. I don't know if I can stand the pressure that comes with basketball. You know, I just... I just want to fade out. I want to fade away for a little bit. And, and drugs drugs did that for me. You know, it, it took me away right. from reality.
1: You know, Chris, it's amazing because it, it, you got me to rethink this whole thing. I thought this was one of the only things I knew, this question of why. I really felt strongly about this until you said this. My feeling is anytime somebody does something and I want to ask why, I already know the answer without knowing the person. The only reason right. anybody does anything is because they can But maybe that's not why. So let me ask you this. What was your why? But then when do we ask that question? Do I say, why did you drink and smoke when you were, I don't know, 12, 13, 14? Or do we ask the question, why were you doing coke when you got to college? So what what was your why? And when do we ask you why?
2: My son is 18 right now. My daughter is 16.
1: Mm -hmm. And
2: as a parent, I just want my kids to be able to walk into a party in high school and feel good enough. Like, listen... Everything I did in my early teen years that was uncomfortable with the opposite sex or socialization, like in high school, I did under the influence because I was in total fear and full of anxiety over it. So at a young age, I used alcohol to overcome it. And, and it's a coping mechanism that I learned at a very young age. I say this, you find me a parent and adults don't say it enough to their kids. There was never a night that I came home drunk or stoned in high school. There was never a night that I tiptoed past my parents because I didn't want them to catch me, went up to my bedroom, put the light on, looked in the mirror, and said to myself, wow, man, I'm so proud of you again. Way to get drunk, buddy. Way to spend mommy's money on marijuana and booze. I was never, I, it never felt good to me internally. Like, I was never proud of myself. It was my escape at a young age, and I think there's a lot of kids that use it for that. But but unfortunately, as adults, we forget how hard it is as an adolescent, as a teenager, in those moments. Some kids get caught, and it, and it doesn't let them go. Some kids can get through it, you know? But I was one of those kids that it wasn't going to let go of me for a long time.
1: Before I ask you what happened, we went to Fresno State and then the NBA. But this right. notion of parents, right? You're a parent. I'm a parent. I've got a 16 year old son. I've got a 12 year old son. There are lots of parents listening right now. They have teenage kids. They've got kids that are going to go away to college. They're going to experiment. They're probably going to drink. They may experiment with drugs. What types of conversations should parents be having with their kids? Right. Why
2: experiment? Like, just tell me, like, like, literally, like, just if if you give me a good answer why at 18, 19 years old, you should try drugs. You give me a good answer why at 18, 19 years old, you should jump in your car, park in a parking lot, and wait for a drug dealer to show up so you can experiment. Like, come on, man. It's so ludicrous. As a society, we've basically laid down to teenagers and said to kids. Kids will be kids. It's a rite of passage. Everybody does it. That's bullshit. And the fact that we so easily look away and say, well, it's going to happen. It doesn't have to happen. And the longer you the longer you prevent it, the better chance they won't struggle from it. So, you know, for me it's for me it's 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 the, the honest conversation and understanding self esteem, self worth and the ability to respond and react in situations that you know it's not necessary. I got an eighteen year old kid, my son's a little hooper fucking best thing I've ever done in my life is raise, is, is raise him and, and, and my children and, and who they are today. It's, it's the greatest accomplishment of my life. Despite all the mistakes I've made, somehow, some way, because of my wife, they've turned out to be these unbelievable children, better kids than I could have ever been. He said to me something that was very profound. He said, Dad, the hardest time for me to stay away from alcohol and drugs was between the age of 15 and 17 because I saw all my friends doing things that I wanted to do, but I couldn't do it sober. And then I turned 17, and I started doing those things sober, and my friends started suffering consequences because of it. And he said that was the toughest time for me. I think it's important to ask why. And parents assume they know the answer, but most don't. Most parents don't know really what the answer is, why their kids are doing it. You know, it wouldn't surprise me one second if my daughter went out and started drinking one night and came home and she said I was just petrified to talk to a boy, and the boy wanted to, like, have physical interaction with me, and Dad, I just panicked. Like, we don't have those hard conversations with kids. Let's be honest, right? And and, and listen, I, I don't care what people think about me, but, but when I was 14 years old, the most intimidating thing to me was a, was a bra strap. It was navigating, how the, How am I going to get the bra strap off the girl? And then, you know what? I'll have four or five beers. Who cares? I'll get it off eventually. But we don't talk about these things.
1: No, hey, listen, can I tell you something? I, I've got kids. I've got amazing kids. I love these kids. But, you know, one will tell you everything. And the other one, man pulling teeth. I mean, and believe me, much easier conversations that I can't get any information or any intel. You're right. We don't have the conversations, much less the really hard conversations. See, Chris, you and I are having an amazing conversation right now, and you've got this really powerful message but it becomes even more powerful when folks know what your journey was and what you went through. I think some listening right now know, and I think some don't. So let's take a few moments and take a little bit of time to talk about this. You go to Fresno State, you get a shot there, you test positive for drugs once again, and I would imagine at that point you're still not sure about the why. You're maybe not even sure about the opportunity that you just had that might have gotten away. Despite that, you still get your shot in the NBA. You get drafted in the NBA. Maybe not as high as you would have been, but you go number three overall in the second round of Denver. In retrospect, Denver, was that a good thing or a bad thing for you? Awesome thing.
2: Absolutely. I was crushed when I got traded. I was so angry. I was crushed. I loved Denver I loved Antonio McDice. I loved George McCloud. Popeye Jones, Roy Rogers, Bryant Stiff, Chauncey Billups. Like, it was an unbelievable high-character team, and I was crushed. I was absolutely crushed. And, and obviously, deep down inside, I knew that I was going home. And I just historically, you know, in that setting, you know, I failed. Uh, you know, I failed at Boston College, and now I'm coming back for, for a second chance. And I completely, completely blew it.
1: You were traded to the hometown Celtics. Once again, you were an enormous Celtic guy growing up. You were going home. Athletes always want to come home. It should have been the best thing ever, but it wasn't for the reasons you're about to lay out. Because first and foremost, I was, I was untreated.
2: Uh, there were periods of time I had sobriety between the age of 18 to the time I was traded, um, but, but never, never in recovery. And I was introduced to OxyContin, and uh, I started taking 1,600 milligrams a day. A kid in, in my hometown introduced it to me, gave me a 40 milligram pill. I spent 20 bucks on it, um, and I eventually started spending 25,000 a month on it. I was taking 1,600 milligrams of OxyContin a day—that's 2080s.
1: 25,000 um, dollars a month on OxyContin.
2: <clears throat> yeah.
1: What did that do for you? What did that feel like?
2: You know, listen, I tell people all the time. I was taking 1,600 milligrams of OxyContin
1: a day not to get high, to hide
2: the sickness. And if I, if I didn't, everyone knew.
1: Chris, what's that like to be a professional athlete and all eyes are on you and literally every waking moment is trying to right, protect and hide the secret so nobody okay, finds out?
2: You know deep down inside it's not going to last. It's, it's horrendous. I mean, you know, you live in constant fear, anxiety. And and you just know that this person you are projecting to be is so far from the person you really are. And, you know, I knew one, at some point, it will all come to light. And once it did, my family, my friends, my professional career, I figured it would all end. You know, obviously, you know, my wife figured out when she got the bank statement, um, when I was playing in, in Istanbul, Turkey, she called me crying. And I was hostage in my house from 7 o'clock in the morning until the mailman came. Once the mailman came, I knew I could leave just in case that statement was coming. And I knew when I got sent to Italy, to Turkey and my wife wasn't coming, one day she'd get the mail. And she called me crying and saw all the money that I had spent. Um, so it came out. And then, you know, shortly after, I, I transitioned to heroin. You know, and I shot heroin for eight years because because I spent 20 bucks on a on a 40 milligram pill.
1: Chris, is that the logical procession for a user? you try something and then you tire of it and then you find something stronger, or maybe was that just the way you were wired?
2: No, I, I think that's that's the nat, that's the unnatural or natural progression of addiction um, of this illness. You know, for me, it's, it's it, it, you know and a lot has to do with circumstances and and what happened to me was, you know, I'm, I'm sick, I'm in full withdrawal, uh, it's becoming obvious, and I want to keep it hidden, and the guy who I'm buying OxyContin off doesn't have any, but his friend has heroin. So you go the heroin route to hide the secret. You go the heroin route to not feel the sickness. And once I went that route, it was over.
1: But for seven years, and, and you were literally running the point, playing professional basketball, while using heroin. And I would imagine on game days, right?
2: You can't, you can't, like people ask me if I got high when I played. When, when it comes to the world of, of opioids, you can't, you can't play basketball unless you have drugs in your system. You can't work, you know, unless you have drugs in your system. Because if you don't, you're sick. And if you're sick, I mean, there's, there's no possible way you can sustain or maintain a professional
1: career. So, Chris, for instance, that the phrase the phrase is dope sick, right? What does that mean?
2: It's hell on earth. It's as ugly as it gets. It's, it's the flu times a thousand. You know, it's panic. It's everything. I mean, it, it's, it's a physical and, a, and an emotional illness that is unbelievably hard to understand unless you've been through it.
1: So this journey, and this is not all of it, it, it takes other turns— it, it, this is a painful conversation even to have, but what was rock bottom then?
2: See now, as someone in recovery, I hate the word rock bottom. Okay. Because be, because I think rock bottom, I think it's it's a very careless um, word to use around recovery and addiction. Because anytime you chase death for a feeling, anytime you're taking a drug that can end your life, is is bottom. Hmm. I mean, is it rock bottom if you walk into a house and your kid is playing Russian roulette? It's bottom. Call the doctor. Let's get him help. He's thinking about killing himself. Every time you stick a needle in your arm, there's a very good chance you could die from it. That's bottom. So, therefore, when it comes to treating this illness, stop waiting. Stop waiting for this, this bottom, because bottom is ultimately death. Okay? And thank God my bottom I was allowed to dig very deep but at 32 years old I came home to w- to be part of the birth of my third child I was 38 days in a treatment center and I got a two-day pass to go home for this unbelievable moment 38 days earlier I was overdosed with a needle in my arm crashed into a cemetery fence in Fall River, Massachusetts 38 days later I've been sober I'm in a hospital with my wife. I witnessed that day, that birth. My third child comes into this world. I'm a sober dad. I'm present. I'm proud. I walked to the liquor store and got drunk two hours later. I was chasing heroin that night. My wife looked at me. She cried her eyes out. She was so, so hurt. My wife sacrificed her whole life for me. She gave up friends because of it. She lost family relationships over it. And... All she asked for me was for 24 hours of sobriety, and I didn't give it to her. And I went back to that treatment center, and a man at that treatment center told me I should play dead for my family. That the only way out of this is to fake my death, disconnect from my kids, and let them live life without me. Because at the end of the day, I was a drunk, I was a junkie, and I had no business being a father or a husband. And when he said, play dead, I had always in the back of my head wanted to die. Like in the back of my head, I always had this thought, like if I just left them alone, they'd be so much better without me. And it got to the point in my addiction where I would see like another guy raising my kid or I would see my wife with a with a happy husband and living like a normal life. I would see that. But when that man said that to me, you know, it kind of broke me. I went back to my room. I cried started praying. I'm in a treatment center, man, in New York, Rhinebeck, New York. And uh, I've been sober since August 1st, 2008. He told me to play dead. I've been living since.
1: It's incredible. I mean, of all the people who tried to help you, of all the things you heard, that was the person you needed to see. And that was the message you had to hear. And that was the thing that resonated with you most. And then specifically, how do you go about beating back the demons, beating back the devil. How did you do it? With that information, certainly that was your start, but how were you able to do it?
2: You know, I, I was fortunate with the help of Mullen, um,
1: with,
2: with the help of Chris Mullen. I lived with Chris Mullen to get ready for the NBA draft, and, and he understood me. He understood my illness, um, and he tried to help me, and uh, I wasn't ready for it in 1999. You know, but in 2008, he he opened the door for me to go to a place to that place in New York and start my recovery. Um, I stayed there for four months, and from there I went on to a halfway house for three, and from the halfway house I went to a sober house for another four months. Um, I go to meetings, I work a program, I hang out with people who are in recovery. I today I just do what I'm told, you know, and it allows me to keep what I have. Uh, Because if I don't, I lose it all, man. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's it's the greatest accomplishment of my life. Um, You know, being, you know, for the last last nine years and whatever month, I've been the same father, you know. And unless you've grown up in a house with a parent that suffers from alcoholism or addiction, it's really nice to have the same dad every day. You know, it's really nice to have the same mom. For the first nine years of Christopher's life and the first seven years of Samantha's, they didn't have the same dad every day. They didn't know what they were getting, you know? And, and for the last nine years, I've been the same parent and, and, uh, and to anyone out there with kids, um, that is struggling with this illness, uh, that's the only apology they'll ever need because that's really all they ever want is for you just to be healthy and sober and, and I've given that gift to my kids and it's the greatest gift I've ever been able to give them.
1: You know, it's, it's an amazing thing. And I think the answer to this next question, Chris, in part, but you have been clean and sober since August 1st, 2008. So you're coming up on 10 years. What does that number represent to you?
2: <laughs> double digits, brother. Yeah. Right. Good for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Amazing. I'm finally, sco- I'm finally scoring in double digits. <laughs> uh, <laughs> amazing. Uh, it's, it's- it's absolute freedom. Like, it's 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 like I've been able to su- sustain success, you know? And every day is a success for me. You know, like, every night I went to bed when I was doing drugs, and the last thought on my mind, like everybody always says who, who's on drugs, says, yo. know, well, every night I went to bed, and all I could think about was how, how I was going to get high the next day. The last thought on my mind every single night, was what a failure I've been as a father. Every single night, every single night, the last thought on my mind was, "Look at, look at what a complete failure I've been as a father." And I haven't had that, you know. And and it and it's pretty amazing, you know. It's it's uh, it's it's I've been given a gift, and and you know I I try to give it back.
1: I know for a fact there are people listening right now that are struggling with addiction or they know somebody who's struggling with addiction, they feel like they've got no hope whatsoever, that they're fighting a fight that they simply cannot win. What is your message to those people?
2: You know, sometimes people don't have the energy, the strength, um, the capacity uh, to fight the fight for themselves. You know, when I look back on my recovery and what got me there, it was like it was the nurse who chased me out and told me, as I'm thinking about killing myself, that she knew my mom. And my mom had passed away from cancer. And she said, your mom is asking me to help you. Your mom wants me to bring you into my office and make some phone calls for you. So I don't want you to leave the hospital yet. I was 32 years old thinking about killing myself. And this nurse just came out of nowhere who knew my mom. It's it's the nurse, it's the counselor in New York who told me to play dead. It's all, these, all, the, all these, these significant people in my recovery that had a profound impact on me. And they fought for me. They spoke for me. Um, they fought for me. Uh, so, so when you have a loved one who's struggling, fight for them because they really don't have it in them. Some people just don't have the fight left. And, and that's why I think the more we break the stigma of this, and, and, and put it in that category as that it's an illness. Um, you know, you help sick people, and, and sometimes sick people have a really hard time helping themselves. Uh, so fight for them and love them. Um, and, and listen, my dad's an alcoholic, and uh, sometimes I have to step out of it and let a buddy of mine and help him. You know? Sometimes it's too personal, it's too close for me to help my dad. Um, so, so it's not, it's, it's, it's not, it's not horrible to, to step out and let someone else step in.
1: Chris, part of your life work now is the Heron Project. What is the Heron Project? What are the types of things that you're doing? So,
2: you know, Chris Mullen, I'm here because of him, like no bullshit, like him and his wife, Liz, I, I, every year I celebrate, they're the first person I, I text on Christmas. I text them because of, Cause I want to have these holidays I have with my children and my family today, if it wasn't for them. So I wanted to be them. I wanted to be the person who can connect someone struggling to recovery. So I started the Heron project. And what we do is, is we navigate that process for people. We pay for people. We scholarship people. We have online support groups for people. We have sober coaches, life coaches for people. We do it all. So, so over the last six years, it's grown tremendously. And, uh, We've put 3,000 people in treatment, you know, $2.5 million. You know, we've saved families. It's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing foundation. It's an amazing project. And listen, I've, I've had fundraisers at exclusive clubs and it's really hard, man. It's, it's really hard for, for, for people to wrap their, their head around supporting this. Um, so we just, we're blue collar. We're grassroots. We, we get in the weeds, and, and we have an unbelievable support um, network of people that really believe in this mission and helping people struggling. And and, uh, and like I said, we've helped 3,000 people get into treatment over the last five years.
1: So if somebody wants to reach out and contribute, or maybe if somebody wants to reach out because they're really struggling, what is the best way for that person to do so?
2: If you go online, you look at the theheronproject.org, there's there's a whole you know system and process in place for them to go through and we'll help them immediately They will immediately be contacted and will right from that moment uh, uh, an employee a staff member of mine will take take that process over and help them
1: watching you man you you're a fucking great player you. You you were so tough and so fierce and so competitive and you know I'm of that age so I remember when you played and I know people listening would as well and you know that that was then this is now you're looking ahead what you've done with your life is absolutely amazing what you've battled battled back from but if I were just to isolate the basketball part I mean you can talk about a Final Four you can talk about a Lombardi Trophy you can talk about a gold medal. But you and I talked about that 10-year anniversary, which is coming up. And that 10-year is going to represent a different sort of trophy, the AA chip. You will get yours on August 1st, 2018. I've seen this trophy before. I've seen this chip before. How about that as a trophy? What would that represent to you, that piece? I would imagine more than any basketball hardware.
2: (laughs) August August 1st, 2008 um, was the beginning. Um, You know, coming up. On on August first, two thousand eighteen, I'll get that X on the chip. You know that ten that ten piece, and uh, I get three of them because as soon as I get home from that meeting, I give them to each 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 of my children. My son has all my chips. He keeps them. It's amazing how how much they cherish them. It's changed everything about our lives, man. Yeah. Ten years ago, I was. Smoking cigarettes out of public ashtrays. I was, you know, collecting cans to drink $2 vodka, you know? My whole life is changed. Those chips get handed to my children because we all, like, we all celebrate that. That's the best holiday. Because without it, without that anniversary, all holidays change. Christmas is different. Birthdays are different. Everything's different.
1: Literally, this is why I started to do this podcast, because I could never, ever, and you and I have spoken in the past, and we've had some amazing conversations, but maybe never even one like this, and this is why I decided to do this, to have conversations like this with people like you to hear this message. Can't tell you how much I appreciate you, can't tell you how much I appreciate hearing your voice, and I really, really appreciate you sharing that story, Chris. It was so good to get caught up.
2: No nah, man it's great to get caught up and, and I hope you understand like it's an honor it's an honor to be on your show and it's an honor that you invited me back and, and it's something that I have an, an immense amount of gratitude for you know you brought me on your show in LA you know you brought me on today and uh, it means a lot to me that, that you follow up and, and, and allow this message to, uh, to continue and evolve and it has and, uh, and thank you for, for giving me that opportunity brother for real
1: It's a brand new year and we all want to elevate our game to the next level and make 2018 the best year ever. Well, if you're a contractor, builder, or remodeler, listen up because elevating your game this year just got a whole lot easier thanks to my pals at Lumber Liquidators and their new LL Pro Plus program. LL Pro Plus is Lumber Liquidators' new pro services team that you can call for all your professional flooring needs. LL Pro Plus will help you absolutely crush it this year with professional pricing and dedicated support to get you what you need, when you need it most, so you can get all your projects finished on time. LL Pro Plus gives you the ultimate value and quality. And with LL Pro Plus, no job is too large and no job is too small. So put the flooring experts on your team today Today, visit your local Lumber liquidator store or go to LumberLiquidators.com that's LumberLiquidators.com I hope you enjoyed the conversation that I just had with Chris Herron well maybe enjoyed is not the right word I hope that you were able to take something from that whatever that something might be the message and the story are extremely important I would encourage you to share this podcast episode with anybody who you think might need to hear it and if you have any feedback whatsoever hit me up on Twitter tag Chris Herron in it His handle is at C underscore Heron, that's C underscore H-E-R-R-E-N. Also, if you do not know yet, our daily radio program is now a daily simulcast. So you can hear the show on CBS Sports Radio and you can watch it on CBS Sports Network. It airs every single day from noon to 3 Eastern, 9 to noon Pacific. As always, thanks so much for listening. Make sure you have subscribed, leave a review, and I will see you right back here for episode 21 on Tuesday the 23rd. See you then. I'm out.